Good morning. May I have your attention? I said pay attention. Or how about this one? Uh, well, if you would have been paying attention in class, you might have done better on the exam. Or how about what I say to my, in my head to my four-year-old whenever the boo-boo bunny has to come out of the freezer? Pay attention to the extent of your limbs and the presence of objects in your vicinity, <laughs> and you might not injure yourself again. <laughs> we can give attention, pay attention, draw attention, crave attention, have a deficit of attention, and so on. But what exactly is attention? Why do we pay it? Do we lose something in the transaction, or do we gain? Psychological and cognitive researchers might try to answer these questions by talking about, for example, the cocktail party effect, which is our ability to pick out particular voices from the cacophony of a crowd, or the attentional spotlight, which is the idea that we can pay attention to things that are not in the, the, uh, uh, the object of our direct gaze. Or perhaps attentional blink. This phenomenon has to do with the fact that consciousness itself is not a steady stream of awareness or attention, but rather it's punctuated by gaps that our cognitive steamrollers try to cover up. According to this theory, we get these mental processing bottlenecks. We can only take in so much, so our brains blink ever so momentarily when they're occupied with a given task. Of course, this makes the possibility of multitasking a little more problematic than many of us might like to admit. Some have even spoken of the myth of multitasking. And neurological research has demonstrated over and over again that we are not genuinely capable of paying attention to more than one thing at a time. Instead, we switch our attention rapidly from one object to another, or we perform what is known as continuous partial attention to two or more things. But we are not, no matter how much we like to tell ourselves that we are, we are not actually multitasking. And when we try, as has been repeatedly demonstrated in human subject testing, we are more likely to waste time and productivity, and I would add, self-awareness. Of course, then again, if you think you're an exception to the nearly unanimous research findings in this area, I'm sure you must be right. <laughs> Perhaps this gives a biological twist to what Jesus says in today's gospel reading. No one can serve two masters, or at least not at the same time. For all the advantages of our technological, busy, high-paced lives, I worry that we're becoming less intentional, less attentive, less capable of being fully present to the world around us, in our work, our interactions with other people, and with the natural world. All these things call out for our attention. In any case, let us suppose that attention is something that we have and we can give. In this way, our attention is something of a precious resource. And we then might wish to ask, what is deserving of our attention? What is worth the paying of my attention? I would say that the answer to that question matters a lot. The text from Matthew provides one helpful suggestion. Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Look and consider, says Matthew. Pay attention and make yourself present to the reality around you. Do not simply live for the future or become distracted by the many things that clamor for your attention. Keep your eyes on the prize, as the saying goes. 
I'd like today to try to understand attention by speaking about three of my favorite topics. And of course, I should say that um, this is by no means exhaustive. There are many, many things we could say about, uh, about what it means to pay attention. But I'd like to do this by talking about St. Benedict, woodworking, and wilderness. In the Roman Catholic tradition, St. Benedict, the patron saint of students, um, in this tradition, this kind of attention is cultivated among the monks and monastic women who take vows of what they call stability and obedience. Stability, neither, neither of which actually is what it sounds like. Stability is a commitment to live in a particular place and among a particular community of people, to be rooted, so to speak. And obedience literally means listening, not only obeying the teachings of the rule of St. Benedict and the leader of the monastery, but also being attentive to the needs of other community members and extending hospitality and compassion to those outside. The wisdom of Benedictine life leads to the insight that attention is inherently local and that it has real effects in the world around us. This is not to say that it is narrow or lacking in global perspective, but it continually calls one back to the place that one inhabits bodily and asks us to regard with reverence the community and the world in which we live. Now, St. Benedict lived in the sixth century, and for some years he lived as a hermit in a cave. So, easy enough for him and his monks to pay this kind of attention. Not a whole lot going on there, I think, um, at least from our perspective. But in our lives of busyness, fragmentation, information overload, consumerism, and technology, perhaps this is wisdom we can also strive to live by. At the risk of sounding like I also live in a cave in the sixth century, let me give an example. How many of you have seen people, you can raise your hands if you want, um, and I'd like to say this applies primarily to students, but it doesn't. Um, how many of you have seen people walking side by side on a beautiful day and either talking on the phone or texting or tweeting or Facebook updating while apparently completely ignoring the person standing or walking right next to them? On the one hand, this is the new reality of social relating. It's no big deal. Get over it. On the other hand, I can't help but wonder whether this has an impact on the quality of our relating to one another, on our ability to attend to one another, or to notice what it is that presents itself for our consideration. Say, a beautiful tree, or a fascinating bug, or even a spectacular sky. Mythbusters, that TV show that puts urban legends to empirical testing, has demonstrated that talking on a cell phone while driving is basically equivalent <clears throat> excuse me, to being legally too drunk to drive. If being too drunk to drive means you cannot take in and process sensory information in order to respond adequately to any given situation, well, you get the point. To what degree are we intoxicated by the devices and preoccupations that more and more become the focal point of our attention? What do we gain and what do we lose in those transactions. Now, some of you know that I am a woodworker. That is, I build furniture and other things made out of wood. I know that is like so mid to late 20th century. But anyway, um, wood, as you know, is not like clay or even like metal. If you make a mistake, you often can't start over again without getting a whole new board. So in the interest of saving money and not going insane, you become more and more careful about the measurements you make and the cuts you make. Of course, I had to learn this lesson the hard way. 
Like many people, when I first started making things with wood, it was largely for practical reasons. I needed a table, I needed a shelf, but in any event, I did not put much thought to the process by which I was making things or to the fact that I was making them in the first place. But I was focused almost solely on the goal, on the end product. And because I was focused so much on finishing and having the thing, whatever it was, I made mistakes, lots of them. My time in the shop was never present time, only past and future, and never very satisfying. I was never in the moment, never paying attention to what I was actually doing. And gradually I started paying closer attention. I started selecting my wood more carefully and then spending time thinking about how to work with the grain patterns and the natural features of each individual board. I started learning about bows and crooks and cups and twists and about sapwood and heartwood. And I started feeling the difference between walnut and cherry and soft maple. And while I still like the satisfaction that comes from finishing a piece of furniture, and I still make mistakes, my learning curve has brought me to the point where I see woodworking not as a production, but as a practice. The practice of paying attention, the practice of patient waiting, the practice of reverence for something that is external to myself. My attention and my waiting now extends beyond the time in the shop. I even wait and watch to see what different woods and finishes and joints will do over time so that I can more fully and completely understand what I'm doing in the process of building. A furniture maker friend of mine takes this idea to the extreme. Whenever he tries a new design, say of a chair, he takes it up a couple stories and throws it down to the ground. And if any of the joints breaks, he goes back and refines the design, builds another one and so on until he's satisfied with it. I don't have that kind of patience or, or uh, self-restraint. <laughs> the point of all this is that when we pay attention, we bring our full selves to a task, to a problem, to another person, to the art of living well, or to the attitude of reverence. Paying attention pulls us outside of ourselves, out of our expectations, our desires, our attempts to shape reality into our own ideas or images. Paying attention means not only being responsible to the world in a new way, it can also lead to surprise and wonder and self-discovery. But paying attention does not come easily. We have to practice it. We have to work at it, and sometimes to learn it the hard way. My friend and next-door neighbor, Brad, happens to be an outdoorsman and a nature writer. In his beautiful book, The Sespe Wild, which is a series of essays on the Sespe wilderness just northwest of here, uh, beyond Ojai, Brad writes, quote, I chose a day to drive northwest from my home in Los Angeles into the mountains near where maps show Sespe Creek beginning. I had planned to ride my bike a few miles and then bushwhack down to the source of the river. Things seemed to be going well. Then the sun began to warm the wet clay road, and in a few turns of the wheel, my bike became an earth mover, and I nearly went over the handlebars. When I got off the bike, clay sucked at my shoes and I stumbled around as if softballs were stuck to my soles. I sighed. Nothing to do but dig in and deglop. The first three times this happened, I retained my patience. The fourth time, I tossed the bike to the side of the road and walked away into a meadow to have a chat with myself. I looked around for the first time, really. Below me, the creek's tendrils branched out in all directions. V-shaped drainages notched the hills like spread fingers pressed into the sand. The map marked one of these fingers as Sespe Creek, 
but the finger bore no distinction, and the choice looked like the result of a coin flip. Clearly, the cespi is a watershed before it is a stream. One cannot journey to such a source. One can only piece it together from fragments, gather it from the particulars. Trying to find the source of such a stream is like trying to find the source of love. The closer you get, the more dispersed and grand it becomes. Elsewhere in the book, Brad writes about his attempt to speak to a raven who seems to be following him around. He finally realizes that the raven is speaking to him. Wake up, called the raven. Look around, pay attention. Let your next step be outside yourself. Imagine what this place means to me. With my feet on the ground, I walked toward the cespi while seeing all around me at once, mind open and empty, ready for what would come. Brad's transformation suggests that attention, our attention at its best, somehow, paradoxically perhaps, is a state of awareness that is also a form of patient waiting, which is the Latin root of the word attention. It means several things, to wait, to attend to, to stretch or bend toward something, as if to bend down and get a closer look at an object of considerable importance. Perhaps we could say that cultivating a disciplined art of paying attention ultimately makes genuine prayer possible, if prayer is an attentive orientation toward the divine. In this way, prayer is not a momentary transaction, but a condition, a condition of openness, of watching, of attending, of listening, and of responding, or even better, of knowing how and when to respond. Now, as many of my students know, I like to begin and sometimes to end with a poem. This one is called Lost by David Wagoner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes, listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Here, Wagoner reminds us that when we learn to become present to whatever is around us, to what we are doing, and to what a tree or a branch is doing, we become found, which is another way of saying that we are finally paying attention. <laughs>